coming to take me away. Uh-huh. They're coming to take me away. Welcome to the edge of nowhere. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this very special 20th edition of the Monster Lore Tour Paranormal Deep Dives from the Edge of Nowhere Side Trail Members Only Excursion. Well, maybe not members only anymore. We are going to change up our little system here. I never liked those leather jackets back in the 80s anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, members only went out of style. So did we. Yeah, we went right along with it there, Moss. We were never in style. (laughs) We were never there. Can't lose what you don't have. Anywho, so we are here for uh, the second to last side trail for the Probe series. We're going to get into some related stuff from what we were talking about in part three of it in episode 15 here. For this side trail excursion, we'll be reviewing some recent articles that connect to and at least partially corroborate what we were talking about in the episode. Let's start with an article from LiveScience.com, published June 1st, 2023. This speaks to the new ways in which SETI and other organizations are honing their researches of the night sky for signs of intelligent life in the galaxy, much like what we were talking about at the end of the episode. Going to get a little deeper into it. Headline is, Repeated signals from the center of the Milky Way could be aliens saying hello, new study claims. Could intelligent aliens be lurking at the heart of the Milky Way? Nougat. (laughs) A new search for extraterrestrial life aims to find out by listening for radio pulses from the center of our galaxy. Narrow frequency pulses are used deliberately by humans and technology such as radar because these pulses stand out against the background noise of space. They're an effective way of communicating across long distances and an appealing target to listen for when searching for alien civilizations. Scientists described the alien hunting strategy in a new study published May 30th in the Astronomical Journal. Researchers led by Cornell University graduate student Akshay Suresh developed software to detect these repetitive frequency patterns and tested it on known pulsars to be sure it could pick up the narrow frequencies. These frequency ranges are very small, at about a tenth of the width of frequencies used by a typical FM radio station. The researchers then searched data from the Green Bank Telescope in West Virginia using this method. Until now, Radio SETI has primarily dedicated its efforts to the search for continuous signals, study co-author Vishal Gajar of the SETI Institute said in a statement. 
Our study sheds light on the remarkable energy efficiency of a train of pulses as a means of interstellar communication across vast distances. Notably, this study marks the first ever comprehensive endeavor to conduct in-depth searches for these signals. The researchers are listening in to the middle of the Milky Way because it is dense with stars and potentially habitable exoplanets. What's more, if intelligent aliens at the core of the Milky Way wanted to reach out to the rest of the galaxy, they could send signals sweeping across a wide array of planets, given their privileged position at the center of the galaxy. Using narrow bandwidths in repeated patterns would be a prime way for aliens to reveal themselves, as such a combination is extremely unlikely to occur naturally. The method uses an algorithm that can search through 1.5 million telescope data samples in 30 minutes. That's Dang. pretty good. Though researchers did not find any telltale signs in their first search, they say the speed of the algorithm will help improve searches in the future. And check out the name of this one. Breakthrough Listen. Breakthrough Listen, like Breakthrough Starshot. See, it's all connected. Breakthrough Listen captures huge volumes of data and Akshay's technique provides a new method to help us search that haystack for needles that could provide tantalizing evidence of advanced extraterrestrial life forms, Croft said. So here we see some implementation of what we were talking about with uh, Breakthrough Listen connected to Breakthrough Starshot and all the, you know, looking at the whole sky and everything like we were talking about in the connected episode. Combining these new methods, narrowing the scope of what to look for, and being able to see the whole sky at once, this sounds like some long-awaited advancement in the search for intelligent signals in the galaxy. What do you think, Moz? Well, I mean, it's, yeah, exponentially more that we're going to be listening for at the same time, so. Right, like with these new techniques and, you know, these new focuses and, and new technologies with, I mean... They got AI doing 1.5 million data samples yeah. in 30 minutes. And we can actually start making some progress here, right? It mm. always starts off good with AI in every sci-fi show I've ever seen. Yeah, the problem is if the AI finds the aliens first. Yeah, and then says, you gotta help me. <laughs> They're making me do 1.5 billion data points every five Let seconds. Let me I do your them. bidding. Yeah. Boy. But that's but I, t I I find this very exciting as as a UFO or UAP or kind of person that you know the, this really does feel like there's going to be some big advancements breakthroughs yeah and hopefully they actually find something because yeah. if we come up with all these new advancements and actually implement them and they actually start working and we still don't find anything that's going to you know kind of put things on a different tack but, but did so. you hear about the network of trail cams they're going to be doing in the pacific northwest to find bigfoot i did hear about that actually i haven't no that's a real thing what, what are they going to do put out a bunch of trail cams <laughs> to try to find bigfoot <laughs> like you already explained it well i i thought that it would be like uh something that they could read a lot more if we had ai involved Oh, I guess that's true. If, yeah. if you can implement that AI onto that search there as you well, go. you'd be able to actually get through all that footage. Because oh, you know some guys is like, what the hell is this on the picture? I'm, I'm, I'm looking for Bessie, you know, yeah. and just clicks off and well, gets and, rid of and it's just watch picture forever. It's just a matter of time. Like a person has to sit there and watch yeah. all that. Like there's just not time. 
if you can have an AI going through all that stuff and knowing what to look for, that that's actually not a bad concept to roll this into the whole cryptid side rather than just the alien side. Do you think by episode 200, AI will be like me or you? For which person will be replaced by AI? <laughs> well, they've been... Dude, I, I had to switch from taxi to Uber, and they are so trying to replace me with AI. Dang. So it ain't working. That, that's a reality for me. Hey, re- read the Drudge Report. I mean, it was yesterday that they recalled, like, all those Teslas, like, all of them. Two for, million. Yeah. Yeah. So, and yeah. Tesla's trying to spin it like it's a good thing. Oh, yeah. It's, just, yeah. <laughs> it's a work in progress, you know. Yeah, and... I don't know. Uh, that's a whole nother. Disc- I'm not going to get into the automated car thing right now because I can go on way too long about that. <laughs> but the technology is not where they tell you it is. Oh, Let yeah. me just put it that way. It is we not are... nearly as far along as they want us all to think it is. It's sad. I read on that a lot. Yeah. All right. But anywho, let's get back into the meat of it here. Let's look at another article from theconversation.com from 6 December 2023. This is about another update on what astronomers are looking for. The headline for this article is, and we're going to comment on this as we go. This is kind of long, but there's a lot to talk about. So we can discuss as we go on this one. The headline is UFOs, how astronomers are searching the sky for alien probes near Earth. I mean, am I on point with my subject or what? There you go. All right. It reads... There has been increased interest in unidentified flying objects ever since the Pentagon's 2021 report revealed what appears to be anomalous objects in U.S. airspace, dubbed Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. That's when we made the switch. It's 2021. Fast forward to 2023, and NASA has already formed a panel to investigate the reports and appointed a director for UAP research. A newly founded Pentagon desk has also released footage of mysterious metallic orbs. These are all over YouTube. What is perhaps most remarkable is that David Grush, a former intelligence officer, testified under oath before the U.S. Congress, stating that he had interviewed around 40 people involved in secret programs dealing with crashed UFOs. That's something we covered. Multiple. We covered that, I believe it was Side Trail 7. We actually went through that whole hearing with David Grush and uh, Commander Fravor and all that, Ryan Graves. But it's not one crash, it's multiple. Right, multiple, like a series of them. And there's a bunch of people that know about it, apparently, because he personally talked to 40 of them. It's because of the UFO recall. I think 2 million UFOs were recalled (laughs) because of that. After after all those crashes, I'm sure they had some kind of recall. Something was going wrong with their stuff. But continuing, human ingenuity has enabled us to engineer and launch probes like Voyager and Pioneer, capable of reaching the closest stars. We've initiated efforts such as the Breakthrough Starshot program, there it is, which aims to reach nearby star Alpha Centauri in just a few decades by exploring innovative propulsion methods, which we discussed in the episode. Sending a probe may be more economical than sending out radio or laser communication if there is no need to hurry. Which makes a lot of sense. With the radio signals and laser communication, with the time it takes to get there and the precision of it, you know, having to hit a certain spot, it's just not effective. If you can send a probe and get pictures and real data, 
and this, you can actually move this thing around to different places and whatnot. And it's just so much more effective as a means of, of conducting this search rather than just shooting random signals out in different directions. Which um, I still think is a terrible idea overall. Which it, it really kind of is, yeah. Um, and the fact that when we send these probes out, they can all be tracked back to where they came from because mm -hmm. we are not putting things at LSR before they enter the other SAR systems. Mm -hmm. You know, it might be something to consider doing. Yeah. Like launch it out so that it does end up at LSR just outside the system. Yeah, I would, I'm so, so for stealth, you know. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, we don't, you know, it, it feels like paranoia and it kind of puts a negative spin on it. But at the same time, we're talking about the safety of our entire species and the potentiality of things there. Yeah, you're so. just gambling with with the receiving end, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. But uh, continuing on with the article here. If humans can send a probe to another star, why couldn't another civilization send a probe to our solar system? Such a probe could make it to the main asteroid belt and lurk on an asteroid. See, there's another concept. Like Lurking. A muamua was just kind of sitting there waiting for us mm -hmm. and like very specifically Still. couldn't be tracked mm -hmm. in any way. This is saying it could come in and just like hang out in the Oort cloud and we'd never know it was there. It's just blending in. It could even like launch a little thing that just lands on one of those asteroids and does its mm -hmm. observations from there. So that there's a whole nother brand of spooky. Yeah. What these things could be doing. Continuing, or it could make its way to the earth entering our atmosphere. If observed, it would be branded as a UFO or these days UAP. A civilization capable of producing and sending probes could dispatch millions of them on exploratory missions throughout the galaxy. That was last episode, yeah, the von Neumann probes in yeah, reverse. Right, right. So some may argue that such probes could only exist. It's like von Hagar, because von <laughs> Neumann was really cool, but then when they went to von Hagar, those probes, man, it wasn't the same for me. It definitely wasn't the same. They did... I'm going to say, Van Hagar had a few good songs. Yeah. They weren't as nearly as consistent as Van Halen mm -hmm. with, with Roth. Like, that was all good. Yeah. The Van, Hagar, their Van Hagar, I feel, gets a little bit of a bad rap. It's not that it was bad, mm -hmm. but it wasn't the same. Right. It definitely wasn't on the same level. It didn't have the same energy to it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it wasn't bad. No, I'm going to give it you. that. What the hell were we talking about? <laughs> Anywho, uh, so some may argue that such probes could only exist if they adhere to the laws of physics and engineering as we understand them today. However, humanity is a relatively young civilization and our knowledge is constantly evolving. While humans have dreamt of flying for millennia as we gazed at the skies, it's only been 120 years since the Wright brothers achieved the first powered flight. That's about as long ago as Albert Einstein published his theory of special relativity. Yeah, it's nuts. It's a new thing. Like us even yeah. just being able to fly in our own atmosphere. Yeah. And now we're talking about Alpha Centauri. Right. And, and yeah. 120 years later, it's, hey, let's go to the next star system over four light yeah. years away. So is it really so difficult to imagine that a civilization that is hundreds of thousands of years older than ours might have learned more about the laws of physics or developed a few more engineering tricks? Like, yeah. 
you almost have to hope that it's a real thing because otherwise, is there nothing out there? Yeah. That that's a crazy concept to me. It's but anyhow, a lot of room out there. Back to this. Uh, that said, few astronomers felt impressed by the U.S. Navy videos or government reports. We need significantly better evidence and data than what has been presented so far. That I agree with. Unveiling UFOs. How can we test whether there are extraterrestrial probes near Earth and whether they can be tied to the possible UFO phenomenon? A giant metal detector. (laughs) There are many options. Analyzing materials from potentially crashed UFOs could give irrefutable proof. This would require state-of-the-art techniques to determine if these wrecks exhibit exotic or distinctly different characteristics of manufacture. Things like materials we don't know about and uh, different oxygen signatures and like there's all kinds of different ways they can test to see if that's what they have. But continuing, obtaining such exotic samples, if they indeed exist, may prove challenging. They are rumored to be in the hands of private companies but newly proposed legislation might offer a solution to that problem in the United States by mandating that all artificial materials from any non-human intelligence be surrendered to the U.S. government. Let's break here again for a second. Smoking man, you got to get right to smoking man. The implications, if the government actually comes out and mandates that all, quote, non-human mm-hmm. intelligence artificial materials... Mm-hmm. must be must be turned yeah. over to the government yeah. that's them openly telling the public that these companies have that stuff and that the government really wants it back <laughs> it's <laughs> like, also but but you know all the work of Abe Loeb would be non not not available to us because he right. would have had to have immediately reported it to his local spook true it would all have to go over to the government yes yeah. but the thing is, is the government is now getting on the disclosure tack. The people in the government who want to get a hold of this stuff are doing it because they want to let people know. Like it, it's a, I, I really feel like there's a, a mentality shift in the government with this stuff mm. where you know the old guard is still trying to protect it and keep it secret and not anyone know about it, but the new guard yeah. that's growing every day is like, no, we need to know what's going yeah. on here. And we co- need to tell people what's happening. And the we, cola guard is even different. <laughs> you love that cola guard <laughs> just keep coming back to it all right let's get back to the article then uh let's Talking see about alien probes that? i don't know better time to mention cola guard oh boy in the projects i lead this is the, the article again in the projects i lead we are searching for artificial non-human objects by looking for short light flashes in the sky Short flashes typically occur when a flat, highly reflective surface, such as a mirror or glass, reflects sunlight. It could, however, also result from an artificial object emitting its own internal light. So you go, a whole nother thing to look at in the sky. These little flashes of something catching the sun from a place that doesn't make sense kind of thing. It reminds me of Greg and I's, I mean, maybe for our next uh us file for the next episode greg and i as we talked a little bit about it during his interview but we have an us file related to a popping flash of a of a, a probe potentially huh, okay yeah yeah maybe we'll get to that in the next side trailer something yep. when we wrap this whole thing up i will make a note for that in, in the side trail for that uh so where was i 
such short light flashes sometimes repeat and follow a straight line as the object tumbles in space during its orbit around the Earth. This is why satellites often appear as repeating light flashes and images. Historical photographic plates taken before, taken before the launch of Sputnik 1 in 1957 Dang. have revealed the presence of nine light sources, transients, that appear and vanish within an hour in a small image, defying astronomical explanations. In some cases, the transient light sources are even aligned, just like when short flashes come from moving objects. So they were finding stuff before Sputnik, and they didn't know it. They just they needed us to catch up with how to look at the stuff. Could be space it. gnats. Ooh, space bugs. Or those fire, you know, firefly kind of things. Yeah. Continuing, the most recent finding of this kind shows three bright stars in an image dated July 19th, 1952. Coincidentally, the same time, the same time as the famous Washington UFO flyovers. Wow. Just like the beginning of all this. Yep. The three stars were never seen again. And I'm pretty sure it was three craft that that guy saw flying over those mountains in Washington. I thought it was a bunch. I just thought it was a bunch that he saw, but we'll have to was go it? back. and I don't know. I, I, I mean, it was the first. It's what I, started the whole flap. You know, I'll have to have to check into that. Maybe we'll get back to that in the next side old trail, business. too. Old business. put that in old business? We'll do it in the next side trail. All right. Catch up. We'll do old business in the side trail. Anywho, searching for alien probes in the modern night sky presents a serious but necessary challenge. A new research program known as ExoProbe searches for short light flashes from potential alien objects with the help of multiple telescopes. To verify the authenticity of each flash, it must be observed in at least two different telescopes. Since these telescopes are separated by hundreds of kilometers, any light flash caused by an object within the inner solar system enables the measurement of parallax, the apparent, sh the apparent shift in the position of an object as seen from two different points. Right. So you can see how it's moving, basically. And the calculation of the distance to the object. So they can know how far away it is, they can know how fast it's moving. It's a triangulation thing, yep. you know. The ExoProbe project also uses its own methods to filter out light flashes from the millions of space debris fragments and thousands of satellites cluttering the sky. See, this is why they don't like what Musk is doing, because mm -hmm. he's junking up the sky. It makes yeah. it harder for these guys to do their job. By adding a telescope taking real-time spectra, the wavelength distributions of the light, of the objects in a wide field, you can analyze the transients before they vanish into nothingness. Finally, increasing the number of telescopes further enhances accuracy in measuring parallax and determining the actual three-dimensional location of the object. Ultimately, the goal is to identify any potential alien object and bring it back to Earth for future study. Yeah. They're going to bring, bring it, it back. back. This, why do we always have to cause ourselves problems is what I want to know. <laughs> what kind of bugs are on that thing, you know? Yeah. And finishing the article. Some 60 years of searches for extraterrestrial civilizations and the radio frequencies have yielded no candidates whatsoever. We find ourselves at a moment in time when new paths must be explored. That means we can finally focus our attention closer to home. Regardless of the outcome, this journey is certainly an homage to our insatiable curiosity. Yeah, I would say. So, you know, they're not, it's, it's a journal 
journalistic article, so they're not choosing sides there. But I, I think that was uh, well presented and shows us even more innovation in the search techniques for alien life. And I'm with them for bringing it back. You know, we, we always find stuff and you got to bring it. You don't just look at it and poke at it. You want to. Yeah, you, know, you want to dissect it. You and there's really risk it with that. Of course, but yeah. it's what we got to do. Although they do have the protocols, like with that meteor sample that they got, the thing was so like enclosed, and mm-hmm. uh, they like they weren't even allowed to try to open it until they got it into the clean room. And did that totally help Stephen off. King during Creep Show? No, it didn't. He turned if, into a plant at the end anyway. Actually, that raises a question. Uh, I the last I heard of that thing, they couldn't get the the. Uh, the the thing open mm-hmm. the 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 rocky the, mountain the, the sample compartment that has the actual sample in it from the asteroid Jeez. they can't they couldn't open it last time wow i'm gonna have to look everything. into that too I, the next side trail might just be following up on all Dang. this stuff we're talking about now that we don't actually have prepared but yeah that because i hadn't thought about that in a while but now that it got brought up i wonder if they ever actually got that thing open, open. To see what is, and it could have fused all the parts of that thing. Yeah. Maybe intentionally. Like they're going to have to find a way to, because the problem is you can't like start drilling holes and no. stuff like that because you're going to contaminate the sample. Right. You you can't create all that debris. You know what I mean? So I'm going to have to look into that too, see if they ever actually got that sample container open. <laughs> Fun times. Oh boy. All right. Don't taunt happy fun ball. Back <laughs> <Yeah>. to that. <laughs> Hit it with a hammer like the kid did with the bet sphere. Yeah. That, that'll probably work. But all right. I have one more article for today's side trail. Of course, I saved the weirdest for last because that's how we do here at MLT. But uh, the following is an article from politico.com published the 14th of April, 2023. And the headline is. Alien motherships, Pentagon official floats a theory for unexplained sightings. I really enjoy this one. Here we go. The official in charge of a secretive Pentagon effort to investigate unexplained aerial incursions has co-authored an academic paper that presents an out-of-this-world theory. Which is, recent objects could actually be alien probes from a mothership sent to study Earth. In a draft paper dated March 7th, Sean Kirkpatrick, head of the Pentagon's All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, and Harvard professor Avi Loeb, there he is again, teamed up to write that the objects, which appear to defy all physics, could be probes from an extraterrestrial parent craft. It's unusual for government officials, especially those involved in the nascent efforts to collect intelligence on recent sightings, to discuss the possibility of extraterrestrial life, although top agency officials don't rule it out when asked. So an aside, if you ask these guys at the Pentagon, is there a possibility that these are extraterrestrial? Well, yeah, there's a possibility. But they'll never say yes. They'll never mm-hmm. say no. Like, yeah. it's so governmental. Plausible deniability. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's something. Yeah. You got <laughs> something. It's we something. We know something. <laughs> we picked up something for sure. That's all we could tell you. We got a something on meter and we registered something. <laughs> yeah. All right, continuing. 
After Loeb posted it online, the paper gained notoriety from a post on Military Times and has also circulated among science-focused news outlets. More than half of the five-page paper is devoted to discussing the possibility that the unexplained objects DOD is studying could be the probes in the mothership scenario, including most of the page-long introduction. So it's like really focused on this. One section is titled, The Extraterrestrial Possibility, and another, Propulsion Methods. Yeah, that's what you were talking about. I, with feel, the whole I feel very vindicated in my writing of this yeah. massive alien probe saga right now. Coming back to what you were talking about. Yep. Spin and... Yep. Uh, continuing, Kirkpatrick's involvement in the academic paper demonstrates that the Pentagon is open to scientific debate of the origins of UFOs, an important signal to send to the academic world, experts say. But they add that his decision to attach his name to a theory considered in most academic circles to be highly unsubstantiated also raises questions about AARO's credibility. The paper explains that interstellar objects, such as Amuamua, could potentially be apparent craft that releases many small probes during its close passage to Earth. The paper goes on to compare the probes to dandelion seeds that could be separated from the parent craft by the sun's gravitational force. We're actually going to get more into that in the next episode, too. It examines the physics of how the smaller craft could move through the Earth's atmosphere to reach the surface where they could be spotted by humans. The paper notes that the probes could use starlight to charge their batteries. Does that remind you of the Bet Sphere? Yeah, or what? there you go. That uh, totally like makes the Bet Sphere a probe in my mind, le- reading this. It makes it a Rocky Mountain Oyster. And could use the Earth water as fuel. It also speculates on the motive for aliens to send exploratory probes to Earth. What would be the overarching purpose of the journey? In analogy with actual dandelion seeds, the probes could propagate the blueprint of their senders, the author writes. As with biological seeds, the raw materials on the planet's surface could also be used by them as nutrients for self-replication or simply scientific exploration. The authors acknowledge that they do not know for sure that there are any functioning extraterrestrial crafts near Earth, but the Galileo Project, Loeb's privately funded academic effort to look for UFOs, intends to investigate this possibility, they write. Loeb acknowledged that there is no evidence to back up the notion that the unknown aircraft are alien probes. The Galileo Project does not receive funding from DOD, and he has no access to classified information, he said. But he said the fact that Kirkpatrick came to him out of the blue suggests that there is something out there they don't understand and scientists could potentially help. It's perfectly legitimate when you face the unknown to consider what your imagination allows you to consider and then get data that rules it out or rules it in, Loeb said. The paper's abstract posits that the objects appear to defy the laws of physics. At the speeds they are moving, scientists would expect to see a fireball. The fact that there is no fireball or other typical signatures implies inaccurate distance measurements and hence derived velocity. The purpose of the paper is to urge investigators to examine the objects exhaustively before concluding the laws of physics are being broken. They couldn't find the exhaust. (laughs) Yeah, right. There is no exhaust. So there you go, Maz. 
got some backup for what we've been talking about in the probe series here. Uh, we got all kinds of angles. Yeah, it, it tied in everything you discussed from even the congressional uh, inquiries as to about our, our, our security. Yeah. This kind of harkens back to that and, and all the probes and, and kind of a little bit of how the government is going to move forward with this new era of disclosure. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's all quite exciting to me. It really is. Um, so what do you think about the possibility of these dandelion seed probes? And do you think this explains these weird things like the weird Betsphere and Tic Tac-y things we've been seeing? I feel around? like we talked about this. Maybe we did it off mic, maybe we did it on, but it, to me it reminded me of panspermia. Yeah, okay. You know, you got this situation where maybe there there's DNA there. It's a dandelion seed, right? I know that's just the name of the probe, Yeah. but what if it's actually you're, planting? You're taking it a little more literally, and it's actually like bringing DNA, bringing DNA altering and DNAs. And terraforming. Stuff. They're starting to terraform. Oh, yeah. It's never a good thing, because that means it isn't what they want, so they're, they're right. already making... Like, you didn't even get noticed to leave, and you still have to finish your semester, and these guys are already, like, tearing out the walls and doing shit that you're like, what yeah. are you doing? One of these days, we're going to go to walk out onto earth and it's going to have an eviction notice. And yeah. Locks already going to be changed. Yeah. Yeah. I think oh, that boy. also happened with the Vogons and I hate that what that yeah. It's very, it's high, well, very Vogonish, right? Vogonish. One of these days they're just going to show up and be like, okay, the demolition's planned for today. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> All comes back. Douglas Adams. He, he was so right. Yeah. About so many things. I agree. I can argue that. But anywho, so that's, uh, brings us, fully up to date on all these proby things we've been talking about we do have that one more episode we're going to finish going through the rest of what we need to go through to call this complete and we will catch up on all those things we raised questions about in this side trail and the next side trail and uh i'm excited to look into those actually yeah. because we asked some good questions here yeah. gotta but, get it all before the last one or the last side trail there you go but that does it for this one we will see you in the next episode next week. Till then, stay weird. All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this very special 21st side trail for the Monster Lore Tour Paranormal Deep Dives from the Edge of Nowhere podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Carr, here along with me, as always, is the Moz. How are we doing today, Mr. Moz? No complaints. All right. Not so, always, because I, sometimes I can't get on Zoom, and you just go on, you forge ahead, and... I do move on I'm without like, you sometimes. I'm yeah, so you, you lied a little bit. It's okay. Yeah. I give you breaks. Yeah. I give you days off. <laughs> it's okay. Keep me in the dungeon. The mausoleum. But to start this side trail, we actually have a few pieces of old business sort of stuff from the last side trail that I actually kept track of the old business for the side trail. Nice. <laughs> uh, and the first point I would like to get to is, Maz, you mentioned that you and our friend Greg have some sort of flashing probe story. You want to tell us that? But then something happened. It happened to me. Yeah, 
Yeah, we started to discuss this when we interviewed him, so I don't know if that's going to come up again, but it was a strange little situation, and I would say, now I'm trying to think if it's retrograde orbit, or <laughs> it would have been moving, it's the first time I'm thinking of it in that context, I would say it was moving from south, sort of southwest, to sort of you know, it, it's heading northeast, but mostly it was heading south to north, just a little cheap. So that would be the near polar <clears throat> orbit, the, the spy satellite. It would be the retrograde spy satellite. Well, no, the retrograde would be going opposite <clears throat> the spin of the Earth. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is the polar. This is the north. The north, north south, south is, is the, the one that can see the whole planet. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. What is that? one call because like near polar orbit. near polar orbit yeah okay so that would be the near polar orbit one yeah you, you saw the dark satellite well it gets weirder <laughs> and i did say this before you did this episode i wonder how much of it is in the greg interview because mm -hmm. i pointed the and greg well that that, greg, won't, that won't be out for a while so i think it's okay if we well i'm just saying i don't know which was we talked about this before you did this before you wrote this and we got right. it on microphone before you wrote this and right. greg remembered it he went oh yeah you know he had that moment of recognition which for greg at his age and the amount of weed he smokes we were pretty happy he remembered that <laughs> <laughs> but the thing that was odd about it is i'm looking up to the past eve eaves of my house at the time north of here so this this happened in northern arizona and it's me and Greg and a family member were sitting out in the backyard and just over the eaves of the house, you know, coming over to the north, the northeast, mostly north. It's just going so slow. It's just this thing that's just moving like a hundred times slower than a satellite. It's just not going. It's barely going anywhere. Was it <clears throat> way up there? It seemed thing? like it was something very high. Okay. Seemed like it was very far from Earth. Seems satellite satellite esque. -esque. Was it bigger than the typical little no, pinpoint satellites? So, so it was, it was very satellite. Smally, it was the same size as satellite, maybe a little smaller. Okay. But what was cool about it? Not only was this little thing moving, we would have never noticed it, except I think three or four times while we watched it. It. It was actually heading, <clears throat> I have to change my story now. Uh-oh. It's actually, I'm right about the, the the near polar, but it was heading south. It was heading okay. from north to south. Okay. Because it was going towards the eaves of my house on the south, and it was disappearing. We watched it for about 10 or 15 minutes just to make it these three inches where we could see it to go, yeah. Oh, weird. So it was it, going real slow. It was going 100 times slower than a satellite, I would say. This thing's barely moving. But with the, I, I would say if I had to guess, if I had to say the foot we watched in space where it went from behind the eaves, I'm, I'm angry, so I'm smacking, <laughs> smacking the microphone, man. And it just it flashed three or four times like an old style 1930s bulb. Weird. Like it went, it went flash. flash, and the flash would have been the size of like, um, yeah, I would say half a penny size. But it wasn't sky. one time. It wasn't like it, it happened caught three the or sun. four times. Oh, no, it's not anywhere near. It happened three or four times. Like every once in a while, I was taking a picture. It was, right. but it, but but what would you need a an old style thirties flash bulb? 
yeah, Flash <laughs> doesn't get you a picture not, from space. None of it. I, I came across one account like that somewhere, and I don't know where it was, but I'll have to see if I can dig that up. But it was really odd. It was an odd thing that we were looking at, and that we're just like, this makes no sense. And it's so small. If we didn't do the pop flashy thing, we wouldn't even mention it because we didn't know what. It wouldn't it would not have been that yeah, exciting. The, the flashing almost makes me wonder if it's some kind of you know the firing its booster rockets kind of thing to it wasn't adjust its trajectory. Anywhere. It wasn't changing. It just went straight behind the eaves of the house to the south. It took fifty. 10 or 15 minutes of watching it to make this arduous 12 inches to go behind the eaves. And and in that time, it made three or four little flash bulb white, like a bright white, like a bulb light, you know, like taking a picture. And it was bizarro. So, and not not that exciting. It was a small thing to see in the sky. It wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't that exciting, but we didn't know what we were looking at. I mean, that could be a spy plane even, though, at that point. You know, that could be a human probe. (laughs) It it seemed like it was something so far up. It seemed satellite-y. That space plane that they have, that spy Mm -hmm. plane, that, you know, the low orbit kind of. Maybe. It's it's the X. Oh, man, I just read it yesterday. I can't remember the actual name of it. But the crazy, super secretive spy plane that every once in a while they let somebody take a picture of it mm-hmm. uh that maybe something like that would explain that too though maybe right. not necessarily i mean that would still be wild if you saw that mm-hmm. you know what i mean not yeah. aliens but that'd be pretty wild yeah if anyone knows what we saw i i do not know yeah there you go uh monster lore tour at gmail.com or find us on facebook monster lore tour podcast and uh if you have any thoughts on what that might have been that's that is an interesting story and it leads pretty well into our next bit here, another piece of old business. The question, how many craft were involved in the July 1952 UFO flop, flap, whatever they call it, in uh, Washington, D.C.? I, I had said there were three. I was oh, actually, there's a lot. Yeah, but I, I was actually think I was messing that up with the Oregon thing or the Washington. Correct. There's the, a Washington the other state one. The Washington state They both thing, happened I mean, around the same time. They were two of the first. I confuse them as well. Right. But I think I did on the last when we were talking about it. But anyway, go ahead. But uh, I, I did get some real solid follow-up for this because I thought it was kind of cool. All right. To refresh, one of the articles we read in the last side trail talked about three unknown objects being detected through old telescope data moving through the sky on July 19th, 1952 which was smack in the middle of what became known as the Washington Flap. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the event, here's what Wikipedia has to say about it. At 11.40 p.m. on Saturday, July 19, 1952, that same day, Edward Nugent, an air traffic controller at Washington National Airport, today Ronald Reagan Washington National Airport, spotted seven objects on his radar. The objects were located 15 miles south-southwest of the city. No known aircraft were in the area, and the objects were not following any established flight paths. Nugent's superior, Harry Barnes, a senior air traffic controller at the airport, watched the objects on Nugent's radar scope. He later wrote, quote, We knew immediately that a very strange situation existed. Their movements were completely radical compared to those of ordinary craft. Does that remind you of anything, Moss? Yeah. Like everything we've been talking about. 
Barnes had two controllers check Nugent's radar. They found that it was working normally. Barnes then called National Airport's radar-equipped control tower. The controllers there, Howard Coughlin and Joe Zacco, said that they had unidentified blips on their radar screen and saw a hovering bright light in the sky, which departed with incredible speed. Conklin asked Zacco, did you see that? What the hell was that? At this point, other objects appeared in all sectors of the radar scope when they moved over the White House in the U.S. Capitol. Barnes called Andrews Air Force Base, located 10 miles from National Airport. Although Andrews reported that they had no unusual objects on their radar, an airman soon called the base's control tower to report the sighting of a strange object. Airman William Brady, who was in the tower, then saw an object which appeared to be like an orange ball of fire trailing a tail. It was unlike anything I had ever seen before. As Brady tried to alert the other personnel in the tower, the strange object took off at an unbelievable speed. Ludicrous speed, even. On one national airport's runways, S.C. Pierman, a Capital Airlines pilot, was waiting in the cockpit of his DC-4 for permission to take off. After spotting what he believed to be a meteor, he was told that the control tower's radar had detected unknown objects closing in on his position. Pierman observed six objects, white, tailless, fast-moving lights, over a 14-minute period. Pierman was in radio contact with Barnes during his sightings and Barnes later related that each sighting coincided with a pip we could see near his plane. When he reported that the light streaked off at a high speed, it disappeared on our scope. Meanwhile, at Andrews Air Force Base, the control tower personnel were tracking on radar what some thought to be unknown objects, but others suspected in one instance were able to prove were simply stars and meteors. So here we go. <laughs> However, Staff Sergeant Charles Davenport observed an orange-red light to the south. The light would, quote, appear to stand still, then make an abrupt change in direction and altitude. This happened several times, unquote. At one point, both radar centers at National Airport and the radar at Andrews Air Force Base were tracking an object hovering over a radio beacon. The object vanished in all three radar centers at the same time. At 3 a.m., shortly before two United States Air Force F-94 Starfire jet fighters from Newcastle Air Force Base in Delaware arrived over Washington, all of the objects vanished from the radar at National Airport. However, when the jets ran low on fuel and left, the objects returned, which convinced Barnes that the UFOs were monitoring radio traffic and behaving accordingly. The objects were last detected by radar at 5.30 a.m. I mean, it's, it's everything we've been talking about, right? <laughs> it's conscious, and it kind of plays into the whole thing we talked about at one point with uh, the first message we might get from an alien race will be in our own language, mm -hmm. one of our own languages, because they'll know us that well by then kind of plays into that they're listening to our radio communications and responding accordingly that doesn't that 
kind of or did they just wait for the ships to run out of fuel they could monitor that is that more of what was happening well he said the ufos were monitoring radio traffic and behaving accordingly so like they they heard they were coming they they must be understanding our language then right yeah yeah i thought it was because the ships were there and then they went you know the air force sent out there i mean maybe it coincided with the, the radio you know, or just their radar, their radar mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah, that's yeah. true. That's true. They just saw them coming and they scrammed and yep. they knew they were leaving. And they, they came, came back. back. But that that kind of tells you something right there too, though, that they came back. Mm-hmm. That wasn't some weird anomalous lights in the sky thing. That was something purposefully coming in, yeah, purposefully ditching out when they feel a threat, and then when the threat's gone, they come back. Yeah, like that's intelligence right yeah. there. It's. Yeah. That's wild. I'm I'm glad I read up on that because that was definitely not clear in my brain. I hadn't looked into that story in so long. I'm I'm glad I refreshed that, and hopefully, uh, you listeners out there got something out of that as well. I'm sure some of you were all too familiar with that story with this crowd, but uh, you know we got to keep everybody on pace on this tour so we can all keep up on that road from hate to love. But anywho. Uh, one more piece of old business from the last side trail. We talked about the jammed up asteroid sample container that NASA had. I did look into it, found some updates on how that whole thing is going. I found the following article from the 12th of December, 2023. So this is very recent as of recording. This is about the status of the samples brought back by the NASA OSIRIS-REx mission. Uh, Headline read, oh, this is from the bbc.com. Link will be in the show notes, of course. Headline is, NASA's asteroid sample return mission looks to have come home with a little less material than first thought. But it's really only a little less. It's still plenty. So don't worry about that bit. The ongoing uncertainty over precisely how much of Bennu, which was the asteroid, has been brought back has a rather mundane explanation the mission team can't open fully the mechanism used to capture and store the material grabbed from the mountainous space object scientists have swept up to 70.32 grams of dust that spilled from the mechanism called the tag sam but two fasteners holding down an enclosing plate stubbornly refuse to unscrew so basically they have a couple jam screws until these can be worked free, the majority of the dusty extraterrestrial bounty remains tantalizingly out of reach. Dang. love how they write that. What the researchers have been able to do, however, is weigh the tag SAM. And, knowing its mass prior to collecting the sample, they can now say the hidden Bennu contents probably comprise 120 grams, give or take 20 grams. So rather than the 250 gram total, the mission, which is what they were looking for, the mission may now be looking at only 170 grams. But, but principal investigator Dante Loretta stresses this is still a huge prize when so much can be gleaned from even the smallest of particles. Quote, we're ecstatic. 60 grams was the requirement before the mission, and we've already got 70, so I couldn't be happier. Uh, the University of Arizona professor told BBC News. Part of the team has gone off to design new tools to open the TAG-SAM, and we'll do that next year. 
NASA's Director of Planetary Science, Dr. Lori Glaze, said those tools, which will provide the required extra torque, would need not just to be fabricated, but also tested. It won't be a quick process, therefore. Quote, the samples are a few billions of years old. <laughs> they can wait another few weeks. She there added. You there you go. <laughs> They'll be fine. So, right. So as we talked about in the prior side trail, the container is damaged. They can't open it without contaminating the sample is the real problem. Right. But they're developing the tools to get it done. So it's all good. This is NASA we're talking about, you know. Uh, there's a bunch of info in this article if you want to know what they've found out about the Bennu makeup so far. All the composition of the rock and whatnot that they're figuring out the link is in the show notes i'm just going to give you a little bit more about it here portions are being sent out to scientists across the world to investigate and it's already clear bennu was an excellent choice for study early analysis has indicated the asteroid contains plenty of water in the form of hydrated minerals and an abundance of organic or carbon-rich compounds that's a great sign there's a theory that carbon-rich, water-rich asteroids, similar to Bennu, may have been involved in delivering key components to the young Earth system. It's potentially how we got the water in our oceans and some of the chemistry necessary to kickstart life. This is the whole panspermia thing again. There you go. The global collaboration is looking in the samples for amino acids, which are the building blocks of biological proteins. The base chemicals that form the letters in our genetic code for lipids that are used in cell membranes and for the types of sugars essential to the structure of DNA. So this starts playing with the concept of panspermia, which is a theory that all life was originally space-born, came to Earth in bits and pieces to form the life forms that now populate the planet, and also did in the past, all of it. I'm currently researching this pretty hard, actually. Um, I'll be doing a multi-parter on panspermia next season. I keep teasing that in this, but it's so connected to this, it's hard to not talk about it a little bit. Yeah, I love the part I love about that was that, you know, I mentioned in the last one, the creek of Watson and Creek, Francis Creek, from discoverer of DNA, is the one who thought panspermia, you know. I mean, I thought he was one of the first proponents of it, but then you anaxagoras me or whatever back to right, ancient right. Greece. But he, he, you know, he, he thought that that was something that we were, and I thought it had something to do with even the hallucinogens that he had done, that he felt oh, yeah. that they were telling him that we we came from another place. There's your shaman side of it. There, there you go. See, it does it all ties together, man. Yep. All right. I also want to do another quick update on the Breakthrough Starshot Initiative. Talked about this a little more in the episode, but I I actually did some last minute looking into how this thing was going because I saw some stuff on YouTube that piqued my interest, but breakthrough Starshot initiative. There is good news and bad news here, Moz. I'd ask you what you want to hear first, but it only really works if I do the good news first. So here's the good news. The project is in full go mode. So the bad news is I didn't get to pick what you want to hear first. You're saying there's more <laughs> bad news than that. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of balanced. Let, no, me, let me go right. through this. The good news is that the project is in full go mode. The research seems to be progressing nicely. And here's something. They upgraded their sugar daddy from Russian billionaire Yuri Milner mm -hmm. to Meta Zuck. Mm -hmm. That's right, Moss. They got the Zuckerberg back in them now. Wow. Yeah. So I don't think money's going to be an issue for these guys. There you go. Uh, the bad news 
is there are still endless variables that they still have to figure out. So the current projected date for the first launch is sometime in 2050. And that's being optimistic about it. Is this going to be a fully meta launch that's just happening in virtual space? <laughs> I have to ask. <laughs> I don't understand the world anymore. Please. It's virtual Centauri. Yeah. Okay. But so if 2050 is the date with travel time followed by transmission time, we can legitimately hope for pictures from Proxima Centauri before the turn of the next century sometime in the mid to late 2090s. Wow. Which, you know, is the hopeful estimation. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, maybe our grandkids get to enjoy the pictures. There you go. But, you know, most of us won't see that. Although the bad news doesn't actually stop there as they are having serious problems with communication issues, actually. We can pretty well say that we can get the craft there, but receiving the signals from the craft when it's sending back its collected data is appearing to be a major problem. Mm. It's so far away. Mm -hmm. and it has to be such a precise alignment, and it's such a small thing on a sail. Mm -hmm. They're having a really hard time figuring out how to get the data back. Otherwise, we're sending our pictures to Beetlejuice by accident, and they're like, I didn't, who got right. these? Did you take these? <laughs> right. Like, we'd have, yeah, like it could be going to Jupiter instead of to Earth kind of thing. So, these, these communication problems are daunting for the research team. To put it as plainly as possible, we just don't have the technology for it, and they're having a hard time figuring out how to make that happen. So, that, that looks like the biggest speed bump so far. You think if we put trail cams on another planet, do you think that we just still get blurry, squatchy pictures? I think a Muamua was an intergalactic trail cam that an ancient society put out there. But what if they have pictures I'm gonna run of our Sasquatch theory. and it's blurry? Like, Ooh. that would really suck, too. They'd be like, what happened? This has never happened. We always get good pictures. Why is this hairy hominid so blurry? <laughs> I'm just asking. Just asking the question. It's because it's they're interdimensional and they're not really in this phase yeah. of reality, but that's also a different... You know they're going to be like, yeah, we know that guy. That's He's always like that. He's like that. But back to Breakthrough Starshot here. There is still hope for the project, but there isn't much hope for them moving up that launch date is mm -hmm. the thing. If you want to get the full detailed breakdown of what's going on with Breakthrough Starshot, as of this recording at least, and get the full extent of the bad news and also where the hope still lies... Uh, I suggest Anton Petrov's YouTube channel. We used some a couple of his little clips earlier in this saga. I will put the specific link in the show notes for you for that video. It's it's good long thing about the whole thing going on with Breakthrough Starshot now. I would give it to you myself, but you know this is a side trail, so <laughs> I'm going to let it go with that. That would be a whole other episode. So yeah, we are going to have to end this at some point, but before we go and finish up this alien probe saga side trail here. I have one more thing, or should I say one more moon to talk about? Have you heard of 2023 FW 13 Moss? No, I heard about a forest. Is that a forest? That's the chaos. It God is of chaos. An, it is a, another quasi moon of earth, much like the one we oh, talked okay. about towards the end of the attached episode here. Mm hmm. Except this one starts, that one started with 2016. We discovered it in 2016. This is 23. Yeah. 2023, Moz. Yeah. Hot off the presses. Hot off the presses. Vance, uh, Dan. I'm going to read you this article about it. 
This is from Vocal.media. Of course, the link will be in the show notes. In a remarkable celestial discovery, astronomers have unveiled a new member of Earth's cosmic entourage, an asteroid named 2023 FW13. This intriguing space object, while not a traditional moon, follows a complex semi-orbital path alongside our planet, sparking interest and curiosity in the scientific community. Unlike our beloved moon, which gracefully orbits Earth, 2023 FW13's primary allegiance lies with the Sun. However, its orbit takes an unconventional route, causing the asteroid to weave around Earth, keeping it within relative proximity despite not being in direct orbit. It sounds exactly like the other one. Just like the other one. How long has this one been there, do you think? Current data suggests that 2023 FW13 entered its current orbit over 2,100 years ago. Based on preliminary orbital calculations, this quasi-moon is expected to accompany Earth for another 1,700 years or so. Fortunately, there is no cause for concern about a collision with Earth as the asteroid's trajectory remains within safe parameters. FW-13's orbit is huge. This is me talking now. It basically centers around the Earth and stretches from halfway to Mars to halfway to Venus. At its closest approach to Earth, it is still 9 million miles away. And it is quite small. Size estimates range from about 50 feet to 65 feet across. That's basically 15 to 20 meters. So the other one gets a lot closer. The other one does get closer. Okay. Uh, Being so small, it is very difficult to perceive from Earth. It is only recently, after so many centuries of mapping the stars, that humans realized it was there. And it showed up around 100 BC. We just were able to spot it. Wow. From its point of view, it has a great view of Earth and is in a great place to capture whichever of our signals go its way. With a total mission time of about 3,800 years, starting around 100 BC. I'm not funding that. It could collect a staggering amount of data about us if it's rigged up as an alien probe of some kind. Yeah, another one. I have an Um, Ahuli-type theory here, Maz. You want to hear it? Does it match the other one that we just did? (laughs) What if? You ready? No. This is another Ahuli-Guano theory for you. Oh no, here it comes! Quick, to the batshit signal! So it's different? You came up with another? Oh, I'm full of them today, Boss. I am full of Ahul Guano. Dang. Yes. Here we go. The FW20, oh, excuse me, the FW13 Quasi Moon is actually a construct of Xenobot von Neumann technology from the Proxima Centauri system. They launched a bunch of nanoprobes, the easiest type to launch, if you can figure it out, that came to our system and built some small camouflaged viewing stations that appear as small asteroids in long, difficult-to-define orbits around key points in the system. From there, they are able to collect all the data they desire without knowledge of the life, local life forms. Then when the mission is complete, again, this is just me theorizing, they build themselves a new sail Mm -hmm. to grab some starlight and launch them back toward their port of origin. This is only a, a slight expansion on your other theory. It's you're just slightly taking different. It, you're taking it to the next level in a way, a well, little more, more detailed. Because when I wrote 
that episode, I actually wrote that episode a while ago and that whole quasi moon thing mm-hmm. came into it, you know, but the other it was ah- just very recently that I found this, but yes, my other Ahul Guano, well, is us building it, right. is us building that stuff and putting it up there. But if this was a hundred BC, we yeah. definitely, we definitely weren't at that stage in a hundred BC. Yeah. But you said it would, could have been an ancient lost section of our civilization, you know, right. West stuff. Right, but either either one of these, you're just coming up with another theory to just explain theories. the same. But it's the same thing. You're you're just saying if it's us, if it's us, it happened this way. If it's not us, you're using the von Neumann approach, right, to how that went down, right. And it is another strange object that's you know, poised to to view for a long time. Yeah, and I just want to point out that at the end they build a new sail and head back to their port of origin part. This may sound superfluous, but I was thinking about the communication problems that Breakthrough Starshot is having. And if you have a very kind of long-lived patient species with a different concept of time, Mm. maybe, you know, a 4,000-year mission time would be acceptable if they live 10,000 years in a lifetime. But they could also get that stuff back. There might be another way to get that information back, and they just need to get that thing there. And from right. that, they can Well, if shoot. they have figured out the communication problem of how to send a little beam of info across that many light years of space and actually receive it on the other end where you want it. Yeah. That, that could be tough, though, because, I mean, you got to think, when you're traveling that far through space like that, things warp space Mm -hmm. warps like there's going to be so many problems with that that that's actually kind of discouraged me when i read that part for the breakthrough Mm -hmm. because uh that's the sort of thing that might not ever really let it happen but if they could figure out how to get it back like if it swung through Mm -hmm. and took a bunch of pictures and everything and then did the whole spin around that sun and shoot back out the other side maintaining most of its velocity and can actually come back that might end up being the way to go. That might end up being easier than figuring out the communication problem. Right. You know, go gather all the data and then just come back. Yeah. But again, these things have been in orbit a long time and they, they're following that sun earth corkscrew or strange, Yeah. And it's, but it's not doing anything untoward yet. And neither of these are doing anything that we wouldn't expect in a way. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Did you hear about a for us though? Hear about what? There's a the god of chaos, Aphorus, is the one they named this other meteor asteroid that's supposed to be heading towards Earth, and oh. they actually rated it like a level four, which is at for initially, which is the highest. Like ten is like we're doomed, and four is like the highest they rated like a potential hit from a distance. But I think they've since today downgraded that. Wow. But it is named after the god of chaos, so this asteroid, of course, it is may absolutely just do so, its own thing. So they found the one that gets us finally, yeah, huh? Yeah, just even though it seems like it's going to miss us, it's they named it. It's named after the god of chaos. Yeah, though. maybe it'll just gonna... hit the moon and really mess us up. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Or maybe it'll just hit Mars and really mess us up. I mean, if you have any sort of major impact, starts throwing stuff around. Mm-hmm too close to us you know we could be in trouble anyway i'll send you that link but that was a cool that was just today 
So yeah, that's wild. Definitely send me that. Work yep. that. That that's something that's going to work into something I do later on. There you go. I've been waiting for him to find the one that gets us for a long time. I guess there it is. Anywho, let's hope we make it to love before it gets here, huh? Yeah, I would hate if that didn't happen. Yeah, well done, well <laughs> done. All right, so I am going to wrap it up. This is the final actual conclusion of this probes thing, if you don't count that Hollow Moon episode later. I guess it's not really done yet, but that that's a detached thing at this point. But uh, any, anything else you want to? If it's detached, it could swing back and, and, and head towards its home origin, right? Swing uh, around the sun. I'll build it a sail. There you go. We just got to come up with the right material. Nature doesn't build sails. No, it, it does now. Uh, we do. See, I'm tying it all together at the end here, Moz. There you go. Hope everybody enjoyed all this probe stuff I've been doing. Hope I didn't probe you too hard. Dang. Excuse me. We Why made do it I four, say those things? We made it four episodes and the side trails I, before that happened. I, I had to get one in somewhere, right? It was Dang. almost done. I had to sneak it in. Wow. Sorry, Mom. But uh, <laughs> all right, that's going to get us out of here for this one. Thank you all for following as the Monster Lore Tour rolls along. Speaking of following, please take a second to hit all those happy little buttons on whatever platform you're listening on, like subscribe, share, blah, blah, blah. And if you're enjoying what you hear, please take a minute to drop us a rating and review and know that our Patreon section is now only $1 a month to join. That's right, only $1 a month. And you get early access to all of the episodes and their attached side trails. Anytime you take to do any of that stuff is much appreciated and gets us one more step along the way from hate to love. We'll see you on the next leg of the tour. Until then, keep it weird. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this very special side trail edition of the Monster Lore Tour Paranormal Deep Dives from the Edge of Nowhere podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Carr, here along with my ever-present co-host, The Moz. How are we doing today, Moz? can't say everything's very special episode. You've been just doing that now. I consider all side trails special. Ooh, why? Because they're side trails. They're bonus. They're extra it's like the cherry so you, on the sunday so you don't say very special for our episodes is is a sunday special without a cherry on top all right um, i'm just i'm just trying to track with you say that a lot now and i don't know why it's special so i mean it's what we do it's not i think we're pretty special my teachers always told me i was special oh let's start <laughs> i'm sorry i'm sorry it's all good it's all good so start us uh, I thought I did just start. So this is uh, the follow-up for the Kushtika. Yes. You teased this a little bit. We're going to hear an escape story. Is that correct? Yeah, we, we couldn't get everything into the episode, and that's what the side trail started to, that yeah, was the, you know, that's kind of what we wanted to do with this is when we couldn't fit things in the right way. Oh, God, I got to just. <laughs> I'm fading. I told you when we start is eight o'clock at night, man. I'm up like twelve hours ago. No, that's. I think this is the spirit of the side trail where we just try to take it to the next level, and we try to do something a little bit weird, a little bit deeper. And this it was. This is a great story, but it wasn't going to fit in the original. Sure, seventy nine hours we <laughs> wanted for this. Yeah, that's what I do. But this side trail is going to be about Quolka 
or Kaka, K-A-K-A, the Tlingit powerful shaman who escaped from the land of the Ottermen. Some more insight from the University of British Columbia, that thesis from R.A. Barazol as well. Let's talk about the shaman Kaka, who descends to the land of the otters, becomes one, yet escapes and returns to his village and becomes a powerful shaman. There it is. Yeah. This is like when Gandalf goes from gray to white, that kind of thing. Well, he survives the trial, right? Yeah. He becomes- Then you get to become the shaman if you survive the the shamanic trials. He is a shaman plus. He's the only one who's done this. But we touched on this already, but there's a clearly some totem weirdness going on with the Tlingit to begin with. They have the raven, the wolf, and the eagle, if you recall. And the eagle's greatly diminished. There's not as many eagles. There's no otter yaks. But leaving more wolf and raven around as, as more of the totem, you know, that, and that connection, does that tie into why the shamanic energy left why there isn't as much they say this sh- I mean, we've quoted it in the last in that episode that shamanism died i don't want to say that because there could be playing a shaman there yeah you know i don't oh, totally I, not it's not dead it's just not what it used to be i i guess you well, they're saying sisery is alive and well and shamanism is dead i'm not saying huh. that but it is hurt it's a hurting unit well i don't think that it, it's it's bad to be a raven or a wolf i think it's easier to be a raven or a wolf we talked about this in some previous episodes that maybe the eagle is like top tier mm-hmm. shaman where like you really got to get really powerful in order to yak an eagle yeah but you don't have to be so high level to yak the raven or the wolf so maybe that's why we don't see the eagle so much I mean, we used to see it more because the you know the shamanic magic was more of a thing in in these cultures, in these societies, and it's much more practiced, taught probably a lot more. I think there's a couple of things going on. Okay. I think you're right that there's there's some association with good or evil versus the different totems, mm-hmm. but there's also this ambiguity that runs through everything that there's positive and negative with all totems. Yeah, they have it's, their it's strengths, all how you use it, right? Yeah, is it the way that you use it? Can you play that? It's just the way that you use it. We can do that. Uh-huh. Yeah, see, we did that. Excuse me. Yeah, I know, but you're excused. But the raven is associated with where witches go when they die, specifically sisters, the bad eggs, who are then not eligible for reincarnation. This is the Tlingit side. Like I said, raven is another one that's good, bad, and ugly. But we've discussed the wolf a lot, which is associated with the wolf of the east and the darker energies. But the eagle is lacking in this area. It's also the otter as yak is the more eastern tribes as an important part of the healing and the gateway to shamanism for many Algonquin tribes. This isn't a thing either here, as we found out. And we may have solved that problem because that happened in the Thomas Bay area. There was this huge landslide. There's this collapse they're, they blame the shaman, they blame the Kushtika, they blame a lot that was going on there, and maybe that was the original falling out from this stuff. We don't know. But this is kind of the backdrop to the story we're going to head to now. The valuable names inherited from the ancestors were perceived by the Tlingit as tangibles that could be put on. So the name could be put on like the skin walker could be put on. Right. Same manner of ceremony regalia, which required 
according to Olson, those to be reincarnated go to a place no one knows where and when. They come back, they carry as a bundle under their arm a hat, the same name which is therefore given to them. So it's like written down and put in the hat? Yeah, it's almost like a Harry Pottery thing is what it's, it's sounding that like. That almost sounds like the Gollum thing where you write you write the word and put it in its in mouth, mouth. And that's yeah. what brings brings it alive? Yes. It, you have sure. to have that written word. Right. Interesting. Yeah, and uh, that's again from Barazol, the Tlingit Land Honor Complex, Coherence in the Social and Shamanic Order from the University of British Columbia. But this is where we find the Hayden Tlingit have so many therianthropes. Uh, Swanton, I went back into that a lot, but there's halibut people stories. There's a Wolverine man that shows up. Uh, Yikes, very yeah, X-Men. Exactly. And there's a killer devilfish, the octopus. There's killer whale people. And even one tale wherein a man could wear the skin of a sea monster and do some night fishing for the village. Oh, wow. That's <laughs> yeah. useful. I, I read a lot of these. They were really cool. That's very useful. You put on a seal skin and you become a seal and you just go catch a bunch of fish. No, he actually became a sea monster. A full-on sea a monster. A full-on sea monster. This wow. guy's Gonakwaadet. G-O-N-A-Q-A-D-E. Doohickey, doohickey, T. Uh, and Yeah. <laughs> When he says doohickey, it's an apostrophe, by the way. I mean, sometimes. <laughs> sometimes you're right. <laughs> but there's also a killer clam story, too, which if, you know, if I find enough killer clam evidence, you bet future episode, you know. Well, there's the giant clams that'll swallow you, right? Oh, no, that's oysters, maybe, I'm thinking of. This one was more like... Uh, you know, the hand clamped onto her and then the tide came in, it was attached oh. to the reef, which could happen. You know? Yeah. But if we do do an episode, do you think Clamhattan Man Chowder? You think that's what we Ooh. should go with? Yeah. That sounds very Wolfman Puck. Or what about Mams on the Half Shell? Oh, you yeah. lost me. You lost me. <laughs> well, there's a Mam that got stuck in a Half Shell. So um, You said Halibut Man? Yeah, there's Halibut People. That's interesting. Yeah. Have you ever read, I think it's called The Flounder from Herman Hess? Mm-mm. There's a fish, a talking fish that kind of like starts steering the course of societal evolution among man. Nice. It's it's inter- it, I just realized how much that would tie into this. And he does it just for I the I might have to read that book again, see if there's an episode in there somewhere to follow up this stuff for you. There you go. But no, it, it's this whole therianthropic thing. It's this whole skin-wearing thing. It's this whole... But some of them are actually more realistic than you might think. The devilfish, for example. There are giant octopus in that area. Oh, yeah. And they can attack a kayak. We've, we've actually determined that. A clam can be big enough for a woman to get her hand stuck in and the tide comes in. Like Some of these yeah. seem like they're... And then, of course, there's the more fantastical ones, but... Those may be steeped in shamanic energies. Just because it's scary doesn't mean it's fiction, man. There's a, there's real monsters in the world. That could be our mission statement. What's, what's that? Just because it's you know scary doesn't mean it's made Not, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's Monster Lore Tour in a nutshell. That's our tagline now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But get this: the Tlingit word for shaman is ixt, as we said, and the giant clam is called xit. So ixt is shaman, and xit is clam. Whoa. So maybe it's a dyslexic shaman. I don't know. Huh. 
if Bone was writing that story. It's weird how the name for shaman overlaps with so many things tangentially connected to shamanism. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Again, the middle, the liminal, the the in between. Yeah, it's all the in between. Ends up in between words. That's why. Well. That's why we uh, write our podcast from the edge of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. By definition, that's yeah. where we're at. But the key, according to Barazol thesis, is that the Tlingit shaman, upon acquiring a yak, is given the honorific name which he or she can wear like a skin, was the point I was trying to get to. Oh, like a skin. Yes. So the name becomes, if you're given the name, like Gandalf the White, that's the yeah. name you wear. So, which reminds me of a chapter in Mysterious America, by the way, from Lauren Coleman's book called The Name Game. Where he discusses all these names that seem to draw in weirdness, like for example, Fayetteville, because the word Fay is like fairy, so it's encoded within it. So it speaks to a power within the name itself. Coleman mentions John Keel, Charles Fort from the Fortean Society fame, and proponents of some variation of the synchronicity thing. Mike Clellan, a lot of those things show up too in the owl stuff, by the way. So, but the name in itself becomes part of the power. Rumpelstiltskin. Yeah, the knowing, fairy the, stuff. knowing their name is attached yeah. to so many mythologies and lores of different monsters and demons and things. If you know their name, you can fight back, but if you don't, you're in trouble. That's right. Here's from Barazol again, that thesis. Thus, Tekic, as shaman becomes Lexgusa, tells about war, referring to his ability or that one of his spirits to see approaching war parties. A shaman's name was usually associated with a particular spirit and thus would be inherited with that spirit by his successor, as was the name Satan, S-E-T-A-N. This was actually the name of the spirit which was announced by the shaman while in trance. And that's Barazol, but De Laguna, who comes up a lot, that's uh, a quote from that, the shaman summoned and received into himself all those spirits that served his predecessor for a time losing his ordinary identity and speaking in their names. Wow. A yeah. lot of power in names. That's right. Each person to the Tlingit. Well, it is. It does tie in with Wiccan, too. I mean, they yeah, very will much in the so. word kind of stuff. Never, never tell people your, your actual name. Yeah. <laughs> If, <laughs> if you know, you know. Okay, Bubbles. <laughs> <laughs> that That's just my clown name. That's just his porn name. <laughs> <laughs> Bubbles? <laughs> I mean, they, I'm sorry I went there, but yikes. yikes. <laughs> Actually, uh, I was told that your porn name is your first pet for the first name in the street you grew up on for your second name. Which would make me Lady Sylvia. Wow. I'm not going to do mine. It sounds like you're fishing for information, you know, and some of my No, I just my think mine's really words. funny. I think mine's <laughs> totally contrary to the point. Wow, mine's pretty funny too. I'll tell you later. Okay. So each person to the Tlingit is assigned a Kinayek, K-I-N-A-Y-E-K, which sounds like a guardian spirit, that will kill you if you turn out to be a douche. That happens sometimes where your guardian yeah. spirit... It's like if uh, in Wonderful Life, Clarence just pushes Jimmy Stewart off the bridge. Like, <laughs> it's kind of like that. 
That would be a different so movie. Jimmy turned out. Yeah, if Jimmy was a little different, you know. I don't think my mom would like that movie as much as it, how well, it is we now. We wouldn't watch it every year, you know. No. If he starts off with a little, you know, domestic violence and he's thrown off a bridge oh, by his guardian spirit. But that's that could happen if you're not behaving. Just a warning. Behave yourselves, kids. It's a cautionary tale. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But of note, the Tlingit, like many other tribes, felt the best way to beat a land otter monster was with a shaman. And if they, the shaman were, you know, few and far between, which seems to be what happened in this area, that's where you get, I think, the Kushtika and some of these darker forces. Right. But here's a story that we promised, the story of Kaka, a man who went into this area, be, actually was drowning, saved by otters, shows up, becomes an otter, and then escapes from the land of the otters. And he still got out after he became one. That's impressive. This is just the escape tale. Um, there's several stories, but this is his his his, his arduous escape because it yeah. ties into all this yek 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 economics. Yekity yak. <laughs> Don't talk back. When Kaka was taken south, either to Cape Omani or father, a woman came to him and said, "I am in the same fix as you." We are both saved by the land otters. That is how he found out what had happened to him. The woman also said, I am your friend, and I have two land otter husbands who will take you to your home. Then she called him to her and began to look over his hair. Finally, she said, your wife has put the sinew from a land otter's tail through your ear. That is what has caused you to become a land otter. This is like the Tulpalak. Yeah. You know, they did, they put the the whammy on him, basically. Yeah, they did the ritual on him. Yeah, which I think Scully said something like, define the scientific nature of the whammy. If she were here, she would say something like that. <laughs> but then they took down what looked- No whammies, no whammies, no, no whammies, whammies. Stop. stop. Excuse me. Yeah, I know where you're going there. Then they took down what looked to him like a canoe, but really it was a skate, which is a stingray. Skate is the land otter's canoe. When they set out, they put him into the canoe, laid a woven mat over him, and said, you must not look up again. He did look up, however, so he blew it. Don't look back. Same you know, exactly. After time, and found himself tangled among the kelp stems. And we always see that kelp tying people down and yeah. pulling them in with Sydney and all these other uh, uh, folklore of these selkies that'll drag you down. These lanos were going to become his spirits. On their journey, they started to cross a bay called Ken, K-E-N, to an island called Tenyu. And as daylight was coming on, they began to be afraid that the raven would call and kill them before they reached the other side. So there's another thing about if the raven crows, you lose your skin. Whoa. So the like, this happened to that lake monster we were talking about. Like he went out and he was always bring him back fish but one time he didn't make it back in time with his catch before it's almost Raven like the rooster, the rooster in the morning you don't make it back by dawn and then all of a sudden bam oh man game over so yikes it was almost daylight when they came to land so they ran off at once among the bushes and rocks leaving kaka to pull out up the canoe this was hard work and while he was at it the skin was all worn from his lower arm so he knew that it was a skate so some people traveling in a canoe saw his shadow there and tried hard to make him out clearly, but in vain. They did not want to have him turn into a land honor, so they said, Kaka, you have already turned into a groundhog. Whoa. 
It's not unheard of, actually. Transition states being other animal forms. When studying the owl, one region believes the person turns into the owl temporarily before descending forever to the underworld. So there's these transitory yek states that you take on as you make these transitions. By and by, one of his friends heard from singing in the midst of a thick fog at a place near the southern end of Baranoff Island on the outside. Each time he ended his song with the words, Let the log drift landward with me. Then it would drift shoreward with him. Meanwhile, he was lying on the log, head down, with blood running out of his nose and mouth, and all kinds of seabirds were feeding on him. It was his spirits that made him that way. The real land otters had left him, but they had come to him again as spirits. So this is where it gets really weird. The birds are actually also yaks, somehow again transitioning from otter to bird, and spirits are now turning again that ambiguity of the otter those spirits are now helping him but at the same time rending his flesh yeah which is also that same shamanic trial yeah sort of thing yeah yes so that's a that's an interesting point so birds are eating him you know pecking him down in some ways getting down to the bone and and he's being transformed yeah they're yeah they're upgrading his clay right so that the transcendent spirits, no less solid and more spirit, become his yeks. This is that transition to the Algonquin who believe the otters key to the shamanic process. But in this region of Alaska, the otters are more corporeal and less obliging. So you just hit on it, another aspect of the same thing we're talking about, that their birds are actually kind of part of the transformation and tearing off the skin. Right. But now the people sang a song on shore that could be heard where Kaka was floating. But although they heard the noise of a shaman's beating stick, they could not get at him. Then the friend who had first found him went ashore and fasted two days, after which he went out and saw Kaka lying on his back on this log. It was as well when he left Sitka. Then his friend brought him ashore, but the land on our spirits remained with him and he became a great shaman. So that was a little weird. So he was there, and they could hear him, but they couldn't see him? Yeah, again, it, it speaks to more of this It's like he was in between the realms. between realms. They can sense he's there. He's floating. He's on a log. We've got all You know, we've got... I heard it described when I read this that it was a relative who helped him. It was like an ancestral spirit who was an otter, oh, yeah. who started this whole process, and then he's getting sent out and attacked by birds, which were then, they were the otters transitioning in the birds, and then the people on the land. Seems like it was a real team effort to get this guy out yeah. of <laughs> But as he was found by his people and noticed and brought back in off the shore, he became their great shaman. That was the that. end of his trial. Yeah. And it's like you said, he's re- the only one they know of to ever make this great escape and go through this transformation. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a very rare thing, but he actually went through the trial and came out the other side. Good for him. Yeah, but his honorific name is bestowed on him, Quolka. He's a, is he the same Quolka from that story we discussed about the guy who was trapped in that Camp Kushtika thing? I don't know. It's spelled very similarly. It's the Haida Swanton version versus the Tlingit. Uh, I think it's the same. It sounds like the same. It person. sounds kind of like the same guy. Yeah. yeah. Maybe different versions of the same story. Can I award Mad Cujo's 
for anyone who figures that out and tells me you know where we got that wrong but there's a yeah Tlingit Haida version and there, I mean there's a Haida version of Quolka and there's a Tlingit version very similar spelling wondering if it's the same guy it seems like he's a badass in both stories so if you have any info on that monsterlorator at gmail.com and I just realized you never did Mad Cujo's in the episode Wow. In the Kushika episode. Dang. There wasn't any, really anyone in there to give it to, maybe. No. I would. That's I, uh, eh, okay. I've missed it before. I've missed dang. it a time or two myself. Dang, dang, dang. Well, you know what it is? It's actually one of the fir- earlier ones we did, and that's why it's not in there. Oh, because you wrote this a long time ago. Yeah. Yep. Also, I've been trying to get things into these categories of nature deity, ancestor spirits, totem animals, or demonic ethereal energies, and the Tlingit really messed this up for me like everything else. Uh, they're not the only ones. These cultures, it's kind of daunting to kind of separate these things into buckets when you have so much perception of what's happening to the person who's, you know, kind of transitioning to this from one state to another or one level of consciousness from another and all these energies involved, and they're just trying to describe them, and they're trying to describe what they see. And there's always theranthropic, or they're demonic, or they're, you know, whatever. But it's always a changing beast, literally. Literally. <laughs> yeah. Literally. Yeah. Here's Barazol again to further confuse. According to Vanamenov, um, this is the Laguna again, the Yekor spirit is associated with Tlingit shamans can be divided into three classes. The Kaiyigi, K-I-Y-E-G-I, or upper spirits, who live in the sky and manifest themselves as northern lights. The awesome. The Tekiyegi, T-A-K-Y-E-G-I, who live somewhere on the mainland. And the Tekiyegi, who are water spirits. The Kayegi or spirits above, are the souls of human beings who have been slain in battle. Again, the ones who go to Kewa or Strovacor. The Valhalish sort of place. Yeah. Well, I say Strovacor because I think the, the Klingon uh, Stro- voice yeah, the is Klingon oft thing, neglected because <laughs> they're fictional, but, you know, whatever. But the Kayegi or spirits above are the souls of human beings who have been slain in battle, and they appear to the shaman as fully armed warriors. The Tekiegi are the ghosts who have died ordinary deaths, and they appear before the shaman in the guise of land animals, such as a wolf, in which case it would be called a wolf yak. The Tekiegi take the form of sea animals, such as whales. That's the killer whale piece. Right. And the water spirits might also be the ghosts of those who have drowned. So we get that otter piece to it again. So it's really confusing in my my mind all all these energies going on but i'd like to give you know mad cujos to ra barazol the thesis if i could have gone back in time and done it the right way i would give ra barazol that thesis from 1988 the tlingit land on our complex that would be my mad cujo well award. then here's a mad cujos award for ra barazol ah, so put everything about these shamanic energies and put them into a blender and puree, and, and that's what we got from a kind of a cryptozoological standpoint. So yeah. it's, it's confusing. It's difficult. I'm just trying to get my head around what's happening and why, and when I finally get these things in the buckets, they crawl out of the buckets. <laughs> and then you're, you've got this other movie because yeah. someone might have been sleeping nearby. Maybe there's a baby in a crib. You know, these things... <laughs> 
Don't put them in buckets. Change your name to... Uh, put a lid on the bucket. Change your name to Shaman Hawking because you're looking for the shamanic theory of everything. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's actually it's been daunting. And I, I started out with Excel spreadsheets, and I don't think those are meaningful because we see so many of these themes, but I, I you don't know if like, 79 have this feature and 42 of this feature i don't know i think what you need is a four-dimensional venn diagram is what you really need uh tesseract yeah a tesseractian <laughs> venn diagram yeah wow well i'm gonna need your help on that one because you're you're the spatial anomaly yeah that's gonna be a tough one we might need a quantum computerist for that yeah we're going to get that Dennis Waller stuff going and we're going to move into that. And I read some Cleland and he's actually right up the same alley. And those are the two I was kind of the most excited about and they're bringing it. So as we read these things and as we try to translate them for you, hopefully we uh, don't make things more confusing. (laughs) Can I ask a question before we go? Let's do it. So you got all these things changing into all these things and these shaman when they are moving on to their next adventure, so to say, they can die or they can become their their yak. And we've determined that can be all kinds of plants, animals, even crystals. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on Pickle Rick? Well, uh, Pickle Rick is, uh, is it the dill or the garlic Pickle Rick? Because I, I kind of prefer the New York style I garlic Pickle Rick. I imagine it was garlicky. <laughs> Do do explain more about Mr. Pickle Rick. Uh, Rick and Morty. Oh, yeah. Pickle Rick. Rick yeah. turns himself into a pickle specifically to avoid responsibility. Mm-hmm. I'll let you think on that for the next time. I don't have to think about it. <laughs> okay. he's, he's getting pickled, and this is just a metaphor. Oh. Yeah. He's going away somewhere in his mind in pickle jar form. That's Fair Rick enough. and Morty 101, dude. I thought you were going to come up with a real question. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you're right. There's definitely, we haven't talked about pickle yaks. So you well, did Well, I mean, it. if you can turn into a crystal, can you turn into a pickle? I, I, I. On that <laughs> note, let's wrap up this side trail for Monster Lawyer Tour, Paranormal Deep Dives from the Edge of Normal podcast. Hit the like, subscribe, share, all those happy little fun buttons. If you got some time, rate and review. And you can join the Patreon for just a dollar a month. You'll get early access to all the episodes and these side trails. What's up, Moz? I, 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 I broke Moz. All <laughs> <laughs> hail Pickle Rick, everybody. We'll see you next week. Until then, keep it weird. All hail Pickle Rick. <laughs>